Good morning. I have to say, brother, I'm very impressed, impressed with you sitting right at the front because this is like the danger zone, right? This is the spit zone. Uh, although tomatoes hurt a lot when they're thrown from there, so I guess we're kind of even here. <clears throat> so a blogger by the name of uh, Diane Merriweather, she recounts a harrowing experience from her youth that she affectionately refers to as the Yanomamo Axe Fight. This is what she writes. It was late summer... My brother was 18, uh, bare-chested and early Elvis thin. He stood at the doorway of our mother's home, five inches taller than me, eyes narrowed, fists clenched. <clears throat> but he was nervous behind his anger. He sees his older sister as a tyrant, and he's not too far from wrong. He's immovable, arms crossed tight to his chest, face turned in a subtle flinch while I, summoning my terrible will, am relentless and certain of victory, irresistible force. But something rises up, and he sends me flying backwards. In the struggle to suck air back in, there's a moment when I'm almost proud of him, but it doesn't last long. Act two finds me standing in the driveway with a fat lip, the sound of the slamming front door still echoing down our suburban street. The gas cap from his blue triumph fits neatly in my palm. I want to smash glass. Life has already taught me not to break things I can't repair, but I'm trembling with effort to remember why it matters. He yells, put that down. But my fist clamps onto the tighter. Put it down, he screams. I draw back my arm and aim it at the windshield. Do it and I'll kill you. And he rushes past me into the open garage and comes out with a wooden and handled axe. And time slows down. And I remember wondering if he would do it. The cap is now welded to my palm. In a frenzy of displaced fury, my brother begins hacking at the front lawn. He's screaming and bits of grass and dirt are flying into the air. And the neighbors begin to come out. My boyfriend drives up and takes in the scene. He's been mentoring my brother, teaching him how to lay a, a welding bead. In his presence, my brother drops the, his axe, and my boyfriend walks through my brother's ex explanations and over to where I stand. And he places his hand on my shoulder and gently slides it down my arm to the gas cap in my fist. He twists the cap back onto the Triumph, and we leave. Days pass. I'm sitting at Mary Callender's with my dad. I'm confident he'll take my side. I mean, like he always does. I mean, for goodness sake, my brother had an axe. But it's not playing out that way. My dad says, of the seven diddly sins, pride is the worst. I put my fork down. What about the axe? But dad wants to talk to me about sin. I don't know what shocks me more, to see him ignore my brother's near lethal rage or to hear my atheist father use the word sin. Without pride... No other sin can flourish, he says. He tells me that it was pride that drove me to push my peace-loving brother and pride that grabbed the gas cap. Pride, he said, locks us into our mistakes, closes our exits, hardens our hearts, and lets us feel justified about the bad things we've done. Hear the words of the atheist dad. Pride locks us into our mistakes, closes our exits, hardens our hearts, 
and lets us feel justified about the bad things we've done. You know, pride is deadly. And pride has the power to ignite a conflict where there, is, there was none. And it also has the power to, to intensify a conflict that's already there. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you in the midst of conflict? Maybe in your family, maybe in the church, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your neighborhood. And you're looking. Uh, we good? So, so one of the reasons why Paul writes this letter is because of division, and he wants to address division in the church. And in the passage of Scripture I want you to turn to in Philippians chapter 2, he puts forward Jesus as our example. Jesus is the exemplar of the attitude that we need to walk in if we're to move through uh, conflict well and in a redemptive manner. So Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And I think the thrust of this passage is basically this. Like Jesus, we must leave behind our sense of privilege and entitlement in order to humbly serve others. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence thanking you for uh, this opportunity that you've given us to gather together to worship corporately and to, um, to hear from you through your word that you have inspired, that you've revealed to us, and you've maintained. And so, God, speak through your word. May your Holy Spirit uh, open up our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to respond to what you show us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like Jesus, we must leave behind our sense of privilege and entitlement in order to humbly serve others. So how does Paul make this point? Uh, in three ways. First, we have to understand who Jesus is. What we have to remember, recognize, realize who Jesus is. Look at verse 6, the first part of verse 6. Who, of course referring to Jesus, who being in very nature God. Right? Jesus is in very nature God. Jesus is almighty God. The word for nature there, it means form. It means essence in his form. In his very essence, Jesus is God. He is God. And the emphasis in verse 6 is actually in very nature God, like in the Greek. So he's emphasizing bold font in very nature God. That's Paul's emphasis. 
I love how uh, the letter of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. See, Jesus is almighty God, and that is why we, we can worship Jesus. Right at the end of John's gospel, if you recall, that Jesus had appeared to the ten disciples. Judas is gone. Thomas missed it. I don't know if he slept in. I don't know. He wasn't there. And so when Thomas meets up with the other disciples, the other ten, they're like, we saw Jesus. And Thomas is like, mm, nah. I believe you think you saw Jesus. But until I can touch his wrists for myself, the side that I saw pierced with my own eyes, till I see that, mm, no. And then one week later, Jesus appears with the 11, and he looks at Thomas, bring it in, Thomas, bring it in. And Thomas touches. And Thomas exclaims to Jesus, my Lord and my God. That is not OMG. He is proclaiming and calling Jesus his Lord and his God. Literally, the Lord of me and the God of me. And Jesus' response is, well, blessed are you, Thomas, because you've seen, you believe. But blessed are those who don't see with their physical eyes and they still believe. That's you and I. In other words, Jesus accepts Thomas's worship. Now, when you go to the book of Revelation, at the very end of the book of Revelation, John the seer, the apostle John, he's received this very multi-layered, complex revelation. And at the end, he's, he's kind of overwhelmed with this, the, what the angel has been showing him. And so Revelation reads that he, he falls down on his knees to worship the angel. And the angel looks at John and says, get up, get on your feet. Don't worship me, worship God. He rejects worship, the angel does. When people tried to worship Paul and Barnabas, when they did miracles, they rejected it. Jesus accepts it. Why? Because he is in very nature God. He is almighty God. And because Jesus is almighty God, he rightfully possesses all the privileges belonging to God. Verse 6 continues. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, if you've ever talked with Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll take you to that verse and say, see, Jesus knows that he's not Jehovah God. Therefore, he doesn't try and like grasp at something that's not his. But grammatically, that's not what the point is saying. Grammatically, it's because of verse 6, being in very nature God, that the second part follows. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The NIV 2011 updates it and says it this way. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That's what Paul's getting at, and the rest of the text is going to reveal to us how it is that Jesus did not reveal his deity. He didn't use it for his own personal gain, his own personal advantage. Right? Because Jesus is God, all praise, all glory, all worship, all of it, belongs to Jesus. As Paul tells Timothy, Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light, a light no one has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. 
And so all of that belongs to Jesus. It's innately his being God, and yet he didn't use that for his own advantage while he walked this earth. He didn't use that for his own gain, unlike what we see a lot with not all, but some celebrities, right? They, they will get to the front of the queue. Well, do you know who I am? Oh, okay, go ahead. They'll get out of speeding tickets. Do, do you know who I am? Oh, okay, yeah, sorry. Can I have your autograph? They'll get their kids into the prestigious Ivy League schools. You know who I am, right? That's not Jesus. Jesus didn't use all of the infinite privileges and entitlements that come from being God. He did not use them for his own personal gain or advantage. So therefore, in light of who Jesus is, he's almighty God, in very nature God, he's almighty God, how should we then live our lives? How should we then orient our lives? We live today in such a selfie culture, right? It's total selfie culture. You know, like, oh, look at me, look at me, change this diaper, I'm such a great dad. You know, look at me, fix this, my wife's flat tire, I'm such a great husband. Like, it's such a selfie culture, and really we should be turning it back on Jesus and pointing, our lives ought to point to Jesus, be a savior culture, pointing our lives to Jesus because, well, he is in very nature God. He is almighty God. We have to understand who Jesus is. Secondly, from our text, we have to understand what Jesus did. Right? We have to remember and recognize and realize what Jesus did. Look with me at verse 7. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So, so Jesus, almighty God became a human being, right? He became a human being. So when Adam and Eve fell, God didn't turn their back on humanity. Like, Scripture says, Revelation, that before God created the universe, he created angels. And one-third of those angels fell. They rebelled against God. And so what did God do in response to their fall? Did God the Father send the Son to become an angel, to die on the cross for angels? No. Scripture says that when the angels fell, God created hell. That's the letter of Jude. He created hell for those angels. And a holy, holy, holy God would have been completely just if when Adam and Eve fell, he just washed his hands of them. But he didn't. He didn't. And he didn't send an angel to redeem us. Because, I mean, human beings, I mean, to an to, to a infinitely holy God, I mean, human beings, you know, sweat and B.O.s, kind of icky. He could have said, hey, Michael, Gabriel, you become an, a human being and you redeem these guys. No, no, no. God the Son became a human being. Despite all of the icky frailties of humanity, the Son became one of us to redeem us, and he became one of us forever, right? Like Jesus has his body forever. There isn't going to come a time in the, in the recreated heavens and earth where he just sheds his skin. He's going to have the nail scars, hands, and the side. He has his body. It's glorified now, and we're going to receive glorified bodies, but he has it forever. He became one of us forever. So Almighty God becomes a human being, 
But he doesn't just become a human being. He becomes a servant, right? That's what it means when the text says to make himself nothing. He left behind his divine privileges, his status, and became a servant, one who serves, right? So notice Jesus wasn't born, you know, the son, the stepson of a lawyer, right? Or a military general uh, or a king, an earthly king, right? His stepfather was merely a carpenter. And Jesus wasn't born in this, this palatial villa, you know, or a palace. We all know, and we'll talk about it when December hits, he was born in a manger among the animals. And so Jesus becomes a human being, becomes a servant, but not just any type of servant. He becomes the, the lowest social caste of servant. The word for servant there means bond slave, and it refers to the lowest caste of servant in that day. So scholars, historians tell us that this type of slave that Jesus became was not legally a person, was not allowed to own property. Their testimony wasn't accepted in court. They, were, they could be subjected to being exploited, and they could be tortured and summarily executed. That's the lowest social caste of slavery, and Jesus became that. And so Jesus really is, the incarnation is completely countercultural. It's completely counterculture because in the Roman Empire, it was about becoming socially mobily upward, which is kind of like today, right? So at the apex of, in this highly stratified society, the Roman Empire, at the apex was Caesar. And then below Caesar, there would be like his senators and equestrians and praetorians. Below them would be kind of the upper middle class, middle class, and then the masses would be down there, lower class. And the whole thing in the Roman Empire, kind of like today, is you're trying to do everything, form every relationship, and do what you can do to move up that pyramid. Jesus is at the apex. He's Almighty God, in very nature God. What's he doing? He's moving down the pyramid. Becomes a human being. Becomes a servant. The lowest kind of servant. And he doesn't stop there. Right? He suffered a despised death on the cross. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus did not die like a noble death, like uh, representing his country in war, or, or perhaps dying trying to protect someone. No, he didn't die that way. He didn't die a sympathetic death, like overrun with some horrible disease or die of an accident. Rather, he died an excruciating death. As I said a couple weeks ago, the Romans invented crucifixion, the most horrible form of execution, only to be used on their enemies. That's how Jesus died. And he died a shameful death because, unlike what you see in paintings and on movies, like, Jesus wasn't hanging there in a loincloth. He's naked because this is about humiliation and dominance of the Romans on their enemies. So he dies an incredibly shameful death, an excruciating death, and he dies a contemptible death because Paul talks about Jesus dying under God's curse. Galatians 3, he died under God's curse for us, for our sake. So Jesus, Almighty God, he laid aside his privileges and his entitlements as God in order to serve, right? In order to serve other people. So in light of that, let me ask you a question this morning. In light of that, 
What is God calling you to lay aside? What privilege is God calling you to lay aside in order to serve others? What entitlement is God calling you to lay aside for the purpose of serving someone or other people? We have to understand what Jesus did. And thirdly, we have to understand what Jesus received for his humility. You see, Jesus has been given the, the very highest of honors. Why? Because verse 9, verse 9 begins with a therefore, right? So therefore, it's precisely because of what Jesus did in verses 6 through 8, his humbling of himself, his humiliation. Because of that, therefore, God exalts him. So on the one hand, because Jesus humbled himself the way he did, he received the loftiest of names. Look at verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So as moderns, we tend to think of names as eh, very transient, right? Like people change their names, celebrities change their names all the time. I remember when I was a kid in, in elementary school, like I never liked the name Wayne. And so I, I said, man, when I get older, I want to change my name to a cool name like Todd. And, uh, you know, I'm glad I, I never changed my name to Todd. No offense to any Todds out there. You're good with your name, but I'm glad I kept my name. But we think a name is it's kind of a light thing. You're just kind of a label kind of thing. But in Bible times, in Paul's day, that's not, a name wasn't simply a label. Like when God says, I'm going to cause my name to dwell, for example, with the temple in Jerusalem or with my people. He's not saying, okay, so there's a temple, yellow sticky tab, boom, there's the name Yahweh on my temple. That's not what he's saying. When he's saying, I'm going to cause my name to dwell with the temple with my people, he's saying that my presence is going to be with them. My glory is going to be with them. My authority and power is going to be there in the temple. Right? The name was a big deal. It represented a person's power, status, authority, glory. After the American Civil War, the managers of the Louisiana Lottery approached Robert E. Lee, the general, and asked if he'd let them use his name in one of their schemes. They promised that if he let them use his name, he would become rich. Astounded, General Lee angrily replied, Gentlemen, I lost my home in the war. I lost my fortune in the war. I lost everything in the war except my name. And my name is not for sale. Right? Jesus has been given the loftiest of names because he's humbled himself. But on the other hand, because he humbled himself in this way, Jesus will receive universal worship. Universal worship. Look at verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, what Paul is saying here, verses 10 and 11, is, gonna, is a complete reversal to the way things have been, right? Like, where is Paul writing this letter? From prison. Why is he in prison? Because of the name of Jesus. He's preaching a gospel message that says Jesus Christ is Lord, which is subversive because Caesar is Lord. So because of the name of Jesus, he's in prison awaiting execution. In chapter 1, he'll talk about how the Philippians themselves 
are being persecuted. Why? Because of the name of Jesus. Today, parts of the world, we have brothers and sisters who are being persecuted because of the name of Jesus. But there's coming a day when Jesus returns in his glory, in his power, then every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And for, for relatively speaking, a small number of human beings, past, present, future, like billions of human beings, a small number of us, we will bow our knee and confess Jesus is Lord out of a heart filled with faith and love and adoration for Jesus being our Lord and our Savior. But for the vast majority of human beings on this planet, Their knees are still going to bow, but their knees are going to be bowed under the sheer weight of the magnitude of the glory of the infinite God, forcing them to their knees, causing them to declare Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. So by way of application then, what we're seeing is that humbling yourself leads to reward. I mean, that's kind of the biblical principle, right? Jesus himself said that whoever humbles himself will be exalted, but he who exalts himself will be humbled. Like there's that principle that runs throughout Scripture. So as we humble ourselves, we can expect God to, to exalt us, right, to reward us. But one incredibly important caveat is that the way God rewards us is often very different from how we think of reward, right? Because we typically think of reward as, you know, more money, more status, uh, and sometimes that's how God will reward one of his kids, sometimes. But most often than not, that's not how he rewards. He rewards in his ways, which are not always our ways, and in his time. And we have to be good with that. We have to be here for that. Because after all, he is God and we are not. So given Jesus, our humble king's perfect example, the key application point is actually verse 5. In verse 5, Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Right? So your attitude should be the same is, is literally two words in the Greek text. Literally, Paul says, think this. That's what he says. That's what he writes. Think this in verse 5. Think this. Meaning, think this way. Think what way? Verses 6 through 8. Like Jesus we have to leave behind our sense of privilege and entitlement in order to humbly serve others, right? We have to give up our right to be right. We have to give up our, our desire for recognition in order to serve other people. So in the Yanomama Axe fight, that conflict between Diane and her kid brother, and it, it, it escalated from, from mere words to angry words to, to like the threats of assault, it was a big deal. And you know what? Pride and a sense of entitlement would have egged Diane on. It would have whispered in her ear, oh, he can't do that to you. Like, he's just your kid brother. He's disrespecting you. He has to respect you. You have the right to put him in his place, so do it. Do it. That's what pride and entitlement is whispering in her ear. But following Jesus' example, as Paul lays out in Philippians, directs us a different way, doesn't it? 
it, it directs us to lay aside our claims of entitlement for the purpose of serving others. Yes, he is your kid brother. Yes, he has disrespected you. Yes, you have the right to put him in his place, but don't. Don't. Show him in you what real spiritual maturity looks like. Serve him by helping him see in you what he needs to become. So think this. Think this way. Like Jesus, our humble king, let's leave behind our sense of privilege and entitlement and humbly serve others, even in the midst of conflict. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we bow in your awesome presence, thanking you that you are this infinite God, infinitely loving, merciful, compassionate, holy, and righteous. Words can't describe how great you are in your being. And, and Father, you have chosen to allow us to have an intimate relationship with you through Jesus Christ, who he is and what he accomplished on our behalf. And through faith in him and in his name, we can now know you personally and intimately. And Father, salvation is not simply about getting in. It's about being transformed, becoming more like Jesus. It's about Jesus living out his life in us through his Holy Spirit. And it blows our mind that, 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 that that's a reality, that that's taking place in real time, progressively, slowly, sometimes imperceptibly, but it's taking place, God. How amazing is that? And Father, because we are still in these bodies that are tainted, with the fall, we recognize that there are many times that we um, get in the way of what you want to do. Putting ourselves first, putting our agenda first, um, living for self, being a part of the selfie culture, living for self rather than living for the Savior, Jesus. Forgive us when we do that, Lord. Father, we repent, we turn from selfish ambition from foolish living, from idolatrous attitudes. We repent and turn away from that to embrace the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your grace and enable us, Lord God, to be your witnesses. Lord, I pray for any here who are uh, in the throes of conflict. God, would you strengthen their hearts? Would you open their eyes? And grant them grace. To grant them grace, Lord God, in the midst of uh, whatever conflict they're in. However your grace would manifest, because we know it's real and it's powerful and manifests in a manifold ways. So would you reveal and manifest your grace to them in their hearts, in their minds, in their souls, in their bodies. And we'll give you all the praise for this, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.